Hi, you are now listening to the audio commentary of the picture we had the privilege of making Mulan. My name is Pam Coates, and I was the producer on the movie, and I had the great opportunity to work with two really great directors on the project. I'm Barry Cook, one of the co-directors. And I'm Tony Bancroft, the other co-director. This is one of my favorite parts in the film, starting this way. Well, it was a simple painting that Hans Bacher had put together, sort of watercolor on rice paper, but getting it to animate, I think Jeff Dutton was the genius behind that. Yeah, he was our artistic coordinator, and he worked out a way of revealing the lines through a series of complicated mats, so it looked like it was being painted on, and then created a system of bleed, too, so that it gave a feeling of bleeding into the rice paper. We took a research trip to China, and I remember the first day when we got to actually go to the Great Wall. It was a beautiful day, and there were flags all over it. Right. And that helped inspire that shot, because we were sitting there on the Great Wall, and you heard that sound of flags. Flags flapping and being so high in the mountains. The Great Wall is big enough that you can get like six horses across it at one time. Mm -hmm. It's really nice. Was there falcons at all? on any of the flags? There were birds. Yeah. <laughs> Remember how many times we talked about this opening sequence? We went back and forth several times about how much of our villain, Sean Yub, that we right. wanted to reveal in this first shot. For a long time, we didn't even see his face. Right. We become sort of dark and mysterious. This guy's about to go do something that we got inspired by with some of our research. Um, the towers were really far apart on the Great Wall, and they actually used to light signal fires along those towers to let people know what was going on. And so that's what inspired this sequence. Now all of China knows you're here. We used to have different versions also. I remember where we showed all of Shanyu's troops on the other side of the Great Wall, but we decided it was actually more mysterious just to introduce just Sean Yu as the leader of the threat and then reveal the amount of Huns that he has later on as a surprise in the avalanche sequence. To great effect, I think. Now this is the sequence you meet, Chi Fu. We had a lot of fun with Chifu because we could really push him into the real sort of comical, real cartoon sort of mold. Pat Morita is the emperor. He was a lot of fun to work with. And James Shigeta played the general. It's funny, we have two uh, Japanese actors playing the two leaders of China. Now this sequence this introduction to Milan, we, we struggled with this for a really long time, trying to figure out how to introduce her. But as always, Chris Sanders pulled us out of the fire. Chris Sanders is our head of story, and uh, he just really nailed who she was and defined what personality she was, because if you didn't fall in love with this character, then there was no really use in going on in the story, and he nailed her quirky qualities. Of course, now, he's pretty quirky himself. So. <laughs> Didn't Chris name the dog Little Brother? I think so, yeah. Which we loved. As a matter of fact, Chris Sanders not only did the character design for Little Brother, um, we actually we loved the drawing that he created for it in his storyboards, that we actually used that as the finished design. 
but also he does the voice for little brother. So all that funny yapping, he would be yapping down the hallway, and we just said, that's so funny, we got to get that in there. Yeah. And it's still funny. Now, this sequence here, too, we we battled back and forth this with this about <laughs> how much humor to get into it. I love this. That I love the favorite. sequence. But, he, you know, he's in there praying to his ancestors. <laughs> we wanted to put humor in there. We wanted to make sure that we weren't crossing the line. Yeah, tone was always something that we battled with on this thing because it's, it's a comedy. It's an action picture. Um, you know, it's a drama. There's so many different elements um, and juggling that different tone and where to alleviate the audience with a funny joke or something was always something that we battled with and uh, trying to get a r the right balance. And throughout, there was always the real need for uh, comic relief uh, after certain dramatic parts that we would go between a, a very dramatic section, very serious, and then sort of lighten it up. Maker is not a patient woman. Of all days to be late. I should have prayed to the ancestors for luck. How lucky can they be? Joe Grant was really a champion of this character of the cricket. They are a, a symbol of good luck. We actually bought cricket cages when we were in China. And Joe did really the first drawings and sort of suggested yeah. that we put yeah. the cricket in and all throughout production. We would, uh, you know, come into work, especially when we were in development, and we'd always find a little sketch Joe had slipped under the door of, right. <laughs> of Cricky doing something. Joe Grant is um, one of the oldest uh, living animators and artists that are still employed by the Disney Studios. He actually worked on the first Snow White. He was so a character was, designer on that movie and designed the old hag or witch. So he went from designing the old hag or witch in Snow White <laughs> to Cricky in Mulan. And... Uh, He's a very talented and charming guy. This song sequence, um, really sort of the overall story purpose for it was to set up the, the norm that Mulan is trying to fit in with. And so this sets up the society and what they expect of a woman in that time frame. Wait, what did the writing on her hand say? Can you remember? It's, it was the... Uh, it's literally what she was writing down Yeah, the it was It was uh, the principles of being, the a, principles good of being a good wife or a good, wife or okay. a good daughter That's or something. Right. It's, yeah. like a, it's like a finishing school, the things that would hang on the wall of a, right. of a finishing school for girls. Or now, we had David. Didn't David Wang, who worked on the movie in our background apartment in Florida, do that translation for us? Right, David or, or, or Chen Yi. David Wang actually taught in Beijing, was it Beijing? Mm -hmm. And then um, Chen Yi Chang is from Taiwan, and he, they helped a lot with translations and uh, cultural research, things like that. Chen Yi is just so versatile, phenomenal, and a lot of the character designs are based on his work. We eventually gave him the title of character designer on the movie, but he was so much more. Oh, than he that. did lots. I mean, he of did stuff. everything. You know, designs for the temple. Sort of. He did ideas. research, research in the the accuracy of the costume designs and what dynasty those mm -hmm. costumes would be in, so right. that it was as accurate as possible. And we based the look of uh, of the film on the Tang Dynasty, which would have probably been the closest 
period to where Mulan lived, at least supposedly the, yes. the closest yeah. that really had a a style of its own and an architecture of its own. Many people look at the architecture in this film and it's reminiscent of what would be thought of as Japanese architecture, but the Chinese influence, the look of the uh, the rooftops and so forth. We see it more when we get into the Imperial City, the architecture, but it's uh, it's it's heavily influenced by Tang Dynasty designs and especially the palace that was um, in China at that time. David Wayne was the one that did the um, Chinese line drawing of the Great Wall that opens the film, and um, he had studied that. It's a it's a real art form in itself to try and get that line work and the elegance of it and the beauty and. And uh, so he did a lot of our Chinese calligraphy and uh, throughout the movie. So whenever you see something uh, that's Chinese letters, it, it actually usually means something. Sometimes comic, sometimes not. <laughs> There's tests that Mulan has to go through, and, uh, you know, this was certainly one, the matchmaker test. She had to kind of pass this, and this isn't really totally accurate in, in Chinese history that they would have had to do this, but, but we felt like it was the best way, story-wise, to show that she had failed, you know, and it was also a way of showing that she, she wanted it so bad to, to make her father proud of her. She wanted to pass this test that... She even cheats and writes the notes and stuff like that, and it just kind of showed how important it was to her, and then when she fails, it has a lot more meaning. Now you'll see there's a scene coming up here. Um, since I was an animator at Disney for years, I felt it important to do a little animation in the film, so I animated the scene of the matchmaker coming up when Cricky falls down her blouse, and uh, it was a lot of fun because... Um, well, because it is the matchmaker, and I really liked her design. I, and I, it took you, like, what, four months for this scene? Okay. So get ready for it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it was four months. <laughs> you know, two weeks, four months, one of those. But it was a lot of fun to do, and it, it just kind of reminded me of the fun of being able to lock your room and not be in a meeting and draw like you always want to as an artist. There, there. Oh, the next one. Huh? Here it is. This here is my is. scene right here. Oh, oh. That is, that is the cricky <laughs> there. <laughs> well, this yeah, is a, don't blink. It's well, over. This is a real staple of comedy, seeing the authoritative figure uh, <laughs> be humiliated. Uh, Charlie Chaplin used to do that type of stuff all the time. And, uh, and it's Jerry always fun to watch. I love Charlie Chaplin. I'm <laughs> a, big, a big fan. <laughs> there was some funny stuff in this movie. We thought the worse the matchmaker looked by the end of this scene, the more dishonor would be is on, on coming Mulan's out of her shoulders. Eyes? What is that? <laughs> She's got oil on her eyes. She's got it's a land like spill. Like a birthday cake gone bad. Yeah. <laughs> so something comic goes into something very emotional and dramatic here, and that's again that has to do with the tone that we try to do. The, right there. Yeah. One of my favorite beautiful. shots that animation, animation is so beautiful. We're coming up now to the song, uh, Mulan's Reflection Song. This was the first song um, that was written for the film by Matthew Wilder and David Zippel. Um, 
And it was really the, the songs for, in a musical become kind of tent poles that, that lace the story together and that everything's kind of built upon. So it was really important the first time that we heard it, um, that it kind of land and it, and it really set a tone of who she is and, and this what is, she wanted and what she yeah. wanted. And, and, um, you know, traditionally this is the heroine's I want song, but really Mulan doesn't want anything more than just to be allowed to be herself. And it, so that was the thing that we always struggled with, with this song, lyrically. We, what is she really saying? Yeah, we changed, we played around with the lyrics a lot. We eventually, because it was sort of, a, um, she kind of wanted two things. She wanted to be herself and to make her dad proud. And that came in, we struggled with that for a long time, I think. Yeah. To get that plan right. But it, it the one thing that when, when we first heard it in a room, in a small music room in the feature animation building in Burbank years and years ago, was it, it just struck us with the amazingly passionate and emotional feel of the song that, that we knew, I think we had something special at that moment. There's half and half sort of symbolism there, yin and yang, sort of, but that she's sort of torn, you know, which one... Who am I? Am I who they want me to be? Or am I somebody else who I know I probably am? Yeah, that's a great image. And this kind of visual icon moments like that are really what I think bring the viewer into understanding her dilemma without a lot of words. This sequence coming up, this exchange... When it first started in the movie, it started, remember, they were walking home from town. That's right. This whole sequence, and Dad and Mulan were walking home from town because originally the notice that war was breaking out was posted in town, and he picked a flower from the tree. Mm-hmm. It, it so stuck and resonated when Chris Sanders did it that eventually it found its right place in the movie, but that scene didn't change really from content very much at all. Yeah, it's and really it's the, the same only scene. Thing just, we just switched the location to their garden. Now in this scene, there's a fun thing that we did here, um, a little more Mulan behind the scenes trivia. Um, when Chief Fu is calling out the names uh, of, of people that are being called to serve, they're actually names of some of the staff, some of the artists that worked on the production. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll hear Shao and Chang, Chang. Chin Yi Chang, and uh, Rita Shao, who was a writer on it. Every family must serve in the Imperial Army. The Shao family. The Yi family. I will serve the Emperor in my father's place. The Fa family. No. This is a, on an acting choice. I remember the meeting we talked about having dad, a man who is older, it's tricky. We had a lot of um, discussion about dad because we needed the audience to believe dad was too feeble to go to war mm-hmm. because if he felt like he could go to war, I don't think the, we were afraid the audience would never forgive him for not going after his daughter. And um, so we struggled a lot with what was his disability and how old was he because we didn't want him to be so feeble that you you thought he was going to expire at any given moment, but that moment of him taking his cane and handing it to his wife and the dignity that that gave him mm-hmm. is really one of my favorite parts about this entire sequence. And then this, the shot of those three women. 
it's very difficult to animate a limp or some kind of disability like that accurately in Whale because it's very easy for it to look like you just didn't put in the right amount of drawings or it wasn't animated well and it looks like a mistake. And that's one thing I think Mark Henn, as the supervising animator of Dad, did and brought to the character because it, it has that feeling of an actual limp, which is very difficult to animate. You know, I think we you know, have to give credit to Tom Schumacher of, of suggesting that we show that public side of, of, of Fazu, of the father, you know, his public presentation that he didn't need the cane to walk, that he was able and he was capable. And it also built upon the idea of his pride, mm-hmm. which is what this scene's all about, that he's so prideful, he's willing and, and so devoted to this idea of honor that he's willing to sacrifice his, his life, life for right. it. And Mulan just thinks that's the stupidest thing she's ever heard. Absolutely. And, of course, she tells him that right well, there, Mulan, which is pretty forward. Mulan is, is uh, I think that's a good point, Barry, because honor is a, 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 an element of, that you'll, you'll hear the word honor throughout this movie. To American audiences, we don't quite have the same understanding, and we're not raised with a sense of honor like the Chinese are, and we're... So it was something that we really needed to get across because it hinged upon a lot of why she did it. I think to American audiences, she does what she does because she loves her father. But more than that, we tried to show that it was to honor her father, to honor her family and her ancestors that she did all the things that she did. And when she comes back and presents all the honors that were bestowed upon her by the emperor to her father, that that had meaning because those were physical honors. This is one of the first sequences that we approved into production and that we animated the scenes of Mulan sitting on that statue of the great stone dragon. And it was boarded perfectly by Dean Dublois, one of our story artists, and he ended up being the, the second lead in story for us. But the sequence just got approval right away. But that, but that sequence and had a pretty so big history in front of it because, yeah. uh, you know, I had done some thumbnails Chin Yi Chang had boarded an entire version right. of it once, right. and then Dean brought it all home. This is a pantomime sequence, so the visual icons, again, those visual icons that we represent in here, are so important. And one of the things that Dean brought into the boards was every time you see her make it going into action or doing something different throughout this scene, making choices, you'll always see a face looking at her, and we always mm-hmm. cut to a face, whether it be a dragon face, or and you'll see throughout almost every scene and every new location has a face looking at her, and those faces represented the ancestors. Again, it's a feeling that, that she's being watched, that the ancestors know what she's mm-hmm. doing, that she's breaking and that was the huge, rules of, huge of the family. And um, we actually use that now coming up here with, um, with Grandma, because she represents the spiritual side of the family. She's the closest one to becoming an ancestor. (laughs) That's right. right. (laughs) So she she kind of can communicate a little bit with them, or they through her. So she has this spiritual connection. She instantly knows that something is wrong all of a sudden here. I wanted to talk a little bit about some more of um, Mulan's decision as a sequence we call it. We found, you'll notice in when you look at the sequence 
in which Mulan decides to leave to take her father's place. She stands and she looks at them in bed and she leaves the flower by their bedstand. And a lot of Western audiences wanted more than that. They wanted a kiss, a kiss or a hug or something. Mm-hmm. And that's not a cultural thing. And and the and we got a lot of notes at the very beginning. That is so cold and why isn't this happening? It's because she for a Chinese family, she wouldn't have done that. She was showing her father honor and respect, but she didn't necessarily need to kiss him goodbye. And Mark Hinn was able to pull it off with, with just a look from Mulan. It's easier for live action, for an actor to do that, the subtleties, but to be able to do what he did there in animation is it's pretty astounding. I, I don't know if people realize the level of talent and ability it takes to pull off a, a moment like that, so subtle. Now, this is the first time we see Mushu, who is animated by my twin brother, Tom Bancroft. And great stuff, a really fun character to work with. And Mom said she was always most proud of him. <laughs> you know, Why shouldn't she be? Look, that's good stuff. <laughs> it's good animation. I gotta, you're right, Mom. Now, aren't, didn't we get the, you know the animals that he's pointing to at the top of this temple? Aren't they the zodiac signs? They are. The, so those the are the Chinese, Chinese zodiac, zodiac symbols. Animals. Of which I'm a dog. And all those glowing Chinese calligraphy, another Mulan trivia number 236, are names of artists that worked on the production. Our writers, Eugenia Bostwick Singer yes. and her husband Raymond, were writing partners, and they did the voices for these two ancestors. They had come from an acting background as well. Everybody's probably seen Raymond. He always played uh, somebody's dentist. <laughs> and this is the character I did the voice for, the American Gothic uh, setup. So again, when we were going into the story on this sequence, we wanted to be pretty careful because we didn't want to offend anyone because it, a lot of Chinese do worship their ancestors. And so we wanted to balance the what they did with humor because it had to be we had to place Mushu in a bed of humor or he was really really going to stick out like a sore thumb well this time period that this that we sort of during Mulan's uh, when the poem was written Buddhism had not come from India into China it was really the only religion was a reverence and a worship of ancestors and then, of course, Confucius thought, which is not exactly religious thought, but it came in. Uh, it was there at the time, too. And, in fact, the poem is sort of based on the five tenets of Confucius philosophy or teaching. Oh, that's it. That was my scene. Did you see that? Wasn't that funny? Uh, this is a scene uh, that I animated. Tom was good enough to let me have a Mushu scene. I really wanted to do I love comedy characters. So it was a lot of fun to do this, although I think he went over every single drawing because he didn't, didn't like my drawings. So. He relished the, in and, doing and that. And to this day, he doesn't let me draw the character. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Come on, boy. Eddie Murphy was phenomenal to work with on this. We expected that he would ad-lib a lot more in, in recording sessions, but what we found was that sort of instead of that, he did a great deal of homework preparing... Uh, f- from the script, but uh, preparing ideas that he would bring in and trying things. It was really, really great to be able to work with him. I think he was probably our fastest 
person recording because mm-hmm. he did his homework and he had he had two or three or four different ways of trying it. We would get in, record him, and be done very quickly. And tons of energy. In voice casting, that's one thing you look for a lot is the the energy the character brings, and it's not necessarily speed, but it's life. Different that, uh, patterns to their voices, because you have to sort of divorce yourself from their physicalities. Every time we'd see Eddie, it would be he'd be working on a different movie, so he'd seem to look a little different. Different haircut. A little goatee, or <laughs> once we saw him, and we recorded him in Florida, as a matter of fact, and he was shaved. Stark bald. <laughs> he was doing Holy, Holy Man at the, at the time. So it was kind of funny to see him like that. We made fun of him as much as we could. <laughs> I think uh, Tom did a great job in capturing a quality of Eddie without actually looking like Eddie through the performance. Now, we did this sequence, I don't know, Over and times? over. Uh, at least 30 times. Well, yeah, and Mushu had to be motivated to go with Mulan, but we wanted him to be selfishly motivated so yes. that he's not going to help her at first. He's going to make good for himself, so when he comes back to the temple, all the ancestors will be uh, impressed, and he'll get his promotion. We were talking about tone earlier. The great thing about the Sean Yu sequence is whenever we cut to him, it, it gives the audience a sense of impending doom. There's, and you wonder from the very beginning how we open the picture, how does, we start with the, the world at large, China, and there's a problem. The problem is Sean Yu's coming in and he has a vendetta with the emperor. We don't know quite yet why yet. And then we cut to the one, the emperor even says, the one man who can the one grain of rice. Rain, well, it was a great I even speech. wrote that line. Yeah, That's the did. only line I wrote in the movie. I love that line, too. It's the uh, one grain of <laughs> rice can tip the scale, but one man may be the difference between victory and defeat. And the emperor was talking about something else at the time, but really symbolically, he's talking about Mulan. So when we cut to Mulan, we see that even though she's not a man, but she represents that one man. And so that's a, it's a great dynamic of this film. You get a feeling that every time you cut back to the, the evil Shan Yu, that that's part of the larger story. And you always wonder, how does her, how does this little character, this little girl, Mulan, how is she going to affect the outcome of the larger story? And ultimately, of course, she does. She I prefer, a, prefer woman, by the way, the woman Mulan. She's a girl, Pam. She's 16. Or she's something. 16. She's not a woman yet. I think by the end, she's a woman. But I think she starts as a girl. I think she matures, not physically, but as a, as a person. We didn't talk about Khan. Khan's the horse, actually. And Khan is from a classic Tang Dynasty design, mm-hmm. down to sort of the tiny legs and the really defined snout. Long, yeah, long yeah. snout. And that's really real close to Chen Yi's original design and that character. Beautiful, beautiful work. Ah, here's now, a we, doing shadow you, uh, we should talk about this, this whole sequence and sort of the history of Mushu's song. We thought we w- might put a song in here, and we wrote a song 
We wrote our two. Three. Or three. We didn't write them. We didn't, but <laughs> Matthew, we Matthew, Matthew and David, David struggled David through this. But in our minds, almost from the very beginning, we thought this would be a song sequence. Or we would learn about Mushu through a song. And they wrote some great songs. And every time we did it, it sort of seemed to halt the movie. It really did. It did. It the but, song, enough. If you gave it enough screen time to be a real song, it just stopped the movie. Right. It just ended up not working for the story. I know it was really hard on Matthew and David because they wrote so many songs in this area. It's one of the things we've always talked about, that um, once you start to get in tune with the movie, the movie actually kind of takes on a life of its own, and it kind of tells you what it needs. And right. we would always go to screenings and with the song in there, and it was the first thing that would jump out at, at us as the movie saying, I do not belong here. It's like Take rejecting an organ transplant. That's right. You know, it, it was just... It didn't fit. It didn't and work. it was an emotional thing as filmmakers that you get in tune with it so much that it just doesn't feel right. So it was it was a guttural choice there. But we did get the idea across. Mushu saying, "You've got a problem, and I'm here to help." Mm -hmm. uh, sort of selling his self to to Mulan. Now this this sequence was one of the the first sequences also going into production and. When you first start a production, um, you need to get the wheels greased. And so we put this in really early before we completely had all the characters or the storyline, and so we ended up redoing a lot of this sequence. I got that tattoo afterwards. Did you? It hurt, too. <laughs> and where is it, though? Right there, to my chest, in lieu of hair. We also had a, a lot of back and forth debate about how much Ming-Na Wen, who played the voice of Mulan, was going to change her voice range between, a, a, you know, being a man and being a woman. And we played around with a little bit where she started low, but keeping her low for the rest of the movie felt a little unnatural. So she started low and then just kind of cheated it back up into her normal range. Mm -hmm. Now, this she did a great job, by she, the way. Well, she was. We, we saw her in the Joy Luck Club right. and just fell in love with her as an actress. And uh, the, she does the opening narration in that film. Just beautiful, beautiful uh, performance. And I think it says a lot about an actress for as beautiful as, as Ming-Na is, that she, can, that she can play a man really well, too, which uh, <laughs> I think is to her benefit. In the scene in which she decides what her name is, it, it's kind of a little interesting history. We have an artist, a visual development artist, who helped paint all of our background keys for this movie by the name of Sai Ping Lok. Mm -hmm. And so his name inspired our choice for calling her Ping when she was a man. It's a great name. It's sort of funny to us, but it's actually a, a really decent name. In China. Now, now this sequence again. We try to we hold um, until the very end. Really, that the audience doesn't know that the general is Shang's dad. At one point in the movie, no wonder he got the, the general wasn't Shang's dad. That's right. right. And we changed that later on. It gave a nice emotional dynamic later on when you when you see that 
that the general has been wiped out with all the other troops uh, by Shan Yu. So it, it meant something more to our characters by making making that relationship. Well, and also, I think, mirrors sort of Mulan's arc and, and what she did with... She did what she did to honor her father and because she loves her father. And you see Shang struggling with the same thing. Right. He really loves his, his father here. He's nervous. He's trying to do um, the right thing by making him proud. And we, we liked that sort of... Um, Mirroring the theme there. Yeah, you could tell, you could do a whole story about Shang and his dad. You know, this whole story you could play as a yeah. movie. Right. It would be pretty interesting, I think. It, it was sort of hard at times to know just how much to get into that story. Besides that, I, that scene was also important to us to try and, we worked really hard to try and get a sense of where they were going, the two stories coming together. So there's a lot of strategy that's talked about and where people are and Shan Yu's here and we're going there. Now, I think ultimately though, the audience doesn't really care. You kind of get it when you're just following with it and you just see they're going here and they go there. But another thing that we did along in a directional way, um, something we learned from da studying David Lean films is that we always tried to sh have a progression of left to right so that when our main character was progressing in her story and going towards the palace, she was always traveling left to right. And that when she was kind of going against her story or against that, uh, that, that goal, then she was taking a step back or going right to left screen-wise. And it's, it's a great device, I think, cinematically to use to try and always keep the direction and focus of the story in, in a visual way. Again, this is another um, great Mark scene. It's a very early scene that he animated and really funny. It probably was one of the first scenes. Yeah, it was one of the very early scenes. It was one of the first ones that kind of sold to the studio, too, the idea that the audience will go along with the, the pretense that she actually is a man. She's pulling it off. Um, or that she could play that part. And it was, it was Ming-Na's performance, it was Mulan's animation, and it was the character design. You'll notice that um, when she, when we represent her, draw her as a man, she has more of a jawbone and, and a more angular look to her face. And when you see her earlier in the film as a female, she has a very round, uh, volump more voluptuous or feminine look to her. Voluptuous? Voluptuous? Lump, like voluptuous? Because she's that's lumpy? Good. Yeah, that's what you're trying to say? Yeah, that's what he meant. He did that on purpose. I'll start again. <laughs> she has more of a feminine, rounder feel to her, and it was a, it was something that only you can do in animation, which is kind of the fun thing of, of animation, that you just don't notice it happening. I mean, it's, it's uh, that's all. Little trick. <laughs> Oh, I love this scene. Look at how this beautiful that is. This was not easy scene to do, though. We worked on this thing over and over and over. We never got the idea across. We were trying to get the idea across that she was sort of outcast and put out where they kept the pigs and sort of outside of the confines of the camp. Right. She's uh, kind of I, the lowest of the low. To I don't start. think the scene's so pretty. I don't think you yeah, really. Yeah, I don't think we ever got that, really the no. humor that we wanted out of that. I love that joke of uh, yeah. having a little funny face and <laughs> in the oatmeal too. No fighting. Play nice with the other kids, unless of course one other kid want to fight, then you have to kick the other kid's butt. But I don't want to. Now again, you look at the Mulan in this sequence, and you, you know her when she wakes up, she looks like she's just woken up. Her hair's kind of 
um, messed up. And that was a Mark Hen choice. Barry Temple was a supervising animator for Cricky. Did a funny, funny job. Jeffrey Vareb was our supervising animator for Chi Fu, and he really captured what we were looking for in this. He's really a man you you love to hate. Chi Fu right. is. <laughs> but you've, you've met him, you know. We all <laughs> yeah. know him somewhere. You know people like him. In our lives. Well, well Sean Yu we always talked about is representing the, the villain on the, on the bigger scale of the story. Chi Fu was, was really her, her day-in, day-out villain that she had to deal with on a personal level, her smaller story. So um, he was a, an important device to have in the army camp. Yeah. James Hong. James Hong was the voice. Now, that, um, the sequence in which Mulan sort of peeks around and takes a look at uh, Shang without a shirt on, that was something we added uh, towards the end. We had screened the movie, and we got some notes. Actually, the notes were from um, Michael Eisner. He wanted sort of a hint of romance. You know, we went back and we added that sequence. We had already had Shang taking off his shirt because he was going to go in and do martial arts, but we added that look back in to start to add kind of this interest from Mulan. You've never heard so many uh, female artists hoot and holler at, at a drawing before, too. You need both to reach the arrow. Ruben Aquino was the supervising animator for Shang. And B.D. Wong did the voice. Now, when we were in China, we went to the birthplace of martial arts. The Shaolin Temple. temple. And we got to Luoyang. watch a demonstration that helped inspire some of this stuff. We've got a long way to this is a great song. It helps move the story forward. It, it actually, it's not a song just for a song's sake. It's telling a story. And you see in this song, the progression, no one likes Mulan. The Gang of Three hater. Everyone's picking on her. She's a complete failure. And she finally grows in this movie. By the end of this song, the Gang of Three have a brand new respect for her. And she started to alter the way people feel. You'll also see in this song kind of a visual thing that was developed by our art director, uh, Rick Sluter, and our head of layout, Bob Walker, which I think was done really masterfully. When you first see Shang, he's doing a lot of uh, martial arts with the pole and the stick, and you'll see it was animated and laid out in a sense that whenever you see him, he's represented in full space, which means there's a lot of depth and perspective um, in the scenes, and that was purposeful, that we, we try to get a sense that he, he existed in full space and she existed in limited space or flat space. So every time you see her, she, we tried to place her in areas where that she had less perspective and less movement and depth um, forward and backwards. Um, and it was just a subtle thing that we did in developing this sequence. And then as she starts to succeed, she becomes more dimensional too, artistically. And We should talk about Donny Osmond a little bit in here. He does this song. He was the first concert I ever went to. I had purple socks. You had a little puppy love there. I, I did have a little bit of puppy love happening there. And when we cast B.D. Wong, it was like this miracle because Donny Osmond was the perfect match for B.D. Wong's speaking voice. 
I met Donny Osmond in a restaurant in Beverly Hills, and I got to go to dinner with him, and I was shaking. I was so excited to meet this man, who turns out to be an incredibly lovely human being. Great guy, nice, so pitch. nice. He nailed this song, and it was just really great working with him. It was like this dream come true, and I made my parents so happy because I knew Donny Osmond. Wow. It was really a lot of fun. Also in this sequence, when she climbs the pole, a thing we thought of about a lot with Mulan is when you had to look at how does a woman approach things, and a lot of times a, a woman doesn't have the physical strength as a man, and so we liked her to be able to start winning by combination of her physical strength was improving, but she used her brain, and that's what this ultimate victory in that sequence. She's the person who figured out how to use those weights to help her get to the top of the pole. And you see her now throughout the movie, she continues to combine her physical strength and her mental capabilities to succeed. You'll see the same locations in the song revisited once she's successful, and you'll see that if you compare the two, although they're the same locations, the color has intensified drastically. I really think uh, Anthony Michaels sort of came into his own as an animator, too doing that animation where she goes up the pole. And yeah, he animated on the lawn. Chris Williams boarded that sequence. Yeah, Chris Williams was the guy that really uh, cracked that nut mm -hmm. for us. How do you show a character that has to go through all the training and also get the story across that she's kind of the lowest person on the totem pole, and by the end, not only is everybody trained, but also that they have respect, now respect for right. her, that she's become the best of the best. Press Romanellis was our supervising animator for Sean Yu. He also and did, did some the great bird, stuff. The Falcon. The Falcon. Alex Cooper Schmidt also helped out because the character footage on on Khan, Mulan's horse, wasn't as demanding. You know, we struggled a lot with um, how much footage we needed of Sean Yu in the movie because Sean Yu is a fairly superficial villain. He wants one thing, right? He's big, bad, he wants to come in and he wants to defeat the Emperor. And so we played back a lot, around a lot with how much footage we were going to use of him. Now, we couldn't have done this movie. You can't do a cross-dressing movie without your obligatory bathroom scene. Right. And, you know, that's what yeah, this sort of one it. is. You got to have the character in a naked situation of some kind. <laughs> and this, this was what we called the awkward lake sequence because of that, because it, it introduces the problem of, well, how does she bathe and with all these guys? You want to sort of broach the subject. You yeah. Know? yeah. And to do it with comedy is really the best way to... Because story-wise, we, we talked about this quite a bit, that story-wise, there's really nothing going on that's progressing the plot other than it shows that now she's kind of in with the guys. With the guy, yeah. Our underwear gag. You can't, you know what? Guaranteed laugh with an underwear gag. Especially with hearts. Kids hearts love boxers, underwear. They're going to go nuts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Comedy standard. <laughs> so all it is is humor and character, but we felt really strongly about trying to keep this in because because it is so much fun, and, we, and it, it helps you to really love and care for these characters because they care for each other. I think these that's guys. what makes Disney films great, too, is that you make choices like that purely for the fun of character and the fun of comedy. Ling was played by Getty Wananabe. And Chien Po was... Jerry Tondo. Jerry Tondo. Did a very funny job. He's a very sweet man. Now Harvey Firestein plays the voice of Yao. And there's nothing you girls 
can do about it. Um, we struggled a lot with what we wanted that character, uh, the voice of the character at the beginning. We really, really struggled with who it should be. And once we got Harvey on there, it just really landed it was great. the humor of the character that we needed. And Getty was just so funny. He would have us all rolling in the floor with his antics. The other thing that the Grant Gang of Three are great, we call them the Gang of Three, what they represent for us is, um, and not only are they great characters that we can that we can portray and have fun with, and they represent, you know, the, the manly side of the film, but also, um, in an economic way, they represent the entire Chinese army, because we're making this huge Chinese army picture, and yet we don't have the budget or the time to produce thousands of, of army, so a lot of times we just use our camera to, to get the feeling of, we cut to them so that you get the sense of what the army's thinking without having to represent and draw a hundred people. What did it say on its clipboard there? It actually did say something. It does say something. I can't remember. It was supposed to be a report on how his troops were doing or something, or a training schedule. Yeah, we would always just, it was kind of a running thing with him. He would always just have that clipboard and always be writing something down. It just had to do with him being that that kind of a character. Like the office rat or something. He's a, yeah. He's like uh, making notes whenever you make a mistake or something. The office rat that everybody loves to hate. Now, again, this, this <laughs> scene right in here was yet another subtle layering of... Mulan's sort of growing attraction, attraction mm -hmm. to Shang. And Mushu calls her on it. <laughs> You're flirting with that boy, ain't you? What? She'd like him, don't she? No. Yep. She's living on denial. Mm-hmm. That's not just a river. But I like him anyway. I think it's time we took this war. Now, this was a great little bit for Mushu, because a lot of times uh, you'll see uh, Disney sidekick characters, as they're called. They don't really help the plot too much. They don't really push it forward so much. But what I like about Mushu and Cricky is that this is kind of their moment that they change the course of the story. By forging this note, they actively get Mulan and her troops to the front. To the front. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was a great little story plot moment that we could do in a comedic way instead of uh, finding some other boring, non-fun way. This typing idea was Alex Cooperschmidt's idea. Before we put a sequence into animation, we do what we call a turnover, or uh, we hand the, se the sequence over to the layout artist, and we invite the layout artist who are going to be involved, the editor, and the, su animator. the supervising animators, and everything's already boarded and everything's approved to go into production. We're all ready to go, but we're still trying to keep ourselves open for ideas, and that's the point in time when Alex came up with that idea of the cricket typing, and it's just so funny. It worked out so so great. Now this panda joke, I gotta tell you, this who boarded the panda joke? John Sanford, Johnny. When we boarded this panda joke, we thought it was hysterical. And Tom Schumacher did not like it. And he kept trying to take it out of the movie. And oh, Barry and absolutely. Tony would say, please, just let it play for screening. It's going to be funny. And Tom, so we battled keeping that panda joke in for a very long time. And finally, at the end, Tom Schumacher actually conceded that it was 
a funny joke, and he yeah. let, and we got to keep it in there. And it's another example where we use one of the um, the office workers, if you will, as a voice because um, John Sanford, who did the storyboards for it, also did the scratch on Chifu. And so when Chifu screams like a woman, we actually had tried a lot of different things and actually had a woman scream in there and all this kind of stuff. And it was never as funny as John screaming like a woman. And nobody can scream like a woman like John Sanford to this day. This sequence where Ling shows Mulan the equivalent of a girly calendar. Bruce Johnson did some of the animation, really great transitional stuff. And getting that look that we had in the opening shot of the film, watercolor on rice paper. And stylistically, we just de just departed completely from the rest of the movie again. But it was sort of what they what they dreamt about, and sort of their, especially for uh, Qian Po, what his wish for life was, and what he wanted to get out of this whole experience. But it's fun to sort of do that too. I think it's refreshing for the audience to see sort of another side of uh, visually another look for the film that keeps it interesting. The most famous sequence in that regard is probably Pink Elephants on parade from Dumbo. So this was our sort of little, little fantasy moment. Yeah, having some fun moment and going to a different It was style. actually animated by Bruce Johnson and Aaron Blaze. Mm -hmm. Now the song, A Girl Worth Fighting For, again, it's uh, thematic, is that you see or hear the Gang of Three talking about what they want in a woman. And Mulan's strengths and skill sets aren't really what they're describing. And so it creates this interesting dynamic. And at the very end, once they realize Mulan is a woman, they respect her and love her, and she doesn't really have any of the qualities they're singing about here. No, they're, they're these male chauvinist pigs, basically, and uh, singing about what they think a woman should be. And uh, I'll tell you, when we had screenings for the studio, it was tough. We'd get notes about how, how uh, non-PC this song was. It was the whole idea. Which was the idea, and we were actually kind of happy that we kind of got that kind of feedback because that is the purpose. They're supposed to look really bad for what they think of a woman is because that is the effect that Mulan has on these guys. In the end, she changes their whole perspective of what a woman is in society. Well, the abrupt change between this happy-go-lucky song, suddenly they're faced with the devastation of war. This is also very tricky to handle because... We didn't want to show a lot of dead bodies laying around. We have one shot where we see later the, the army, of course, when they look over the ridge there, but we want to show destruction without showing too much death, but represented by this doll that Mulan finds in the house of obviously some girl that she, uh, there, there's a connection. I don't know how much the audience gets the direct connection, but she sort of sees herself as the little girl who obviously belongs to this doll. At this point, we were talking for a while, do we have to check back in with Dad? And in our minds, that relating, as she picked up that doll, it was kind of thinking of her being back home, too. I don't know if it was ever, it ever came across or not. Right. And I think here, Mulan's reaction to Shang just, uh, being informed of the death of his father reminded her, yeah. we wanted to play her reaction to Shang's moment of sorrow here so that that would also click back right. it to, it, it to her dad. It takes us back home because we, did, we made the decision and we talked on and off whether we needed to cut back home. We decided not to because again we were afraid either the dad was going to be so frail it wasn't going to be entertaining or that the audience would get angry that dad hadn't gone after 
Mulan. Now the um, the scene that the camera booms over the hillside and you actually see that um, the general and all of his troops were wiped out by Shan Yu and we see that with Shang as he rises over the rise also. Um, that scene, that background was painted three different ways and along the lines of what Barry was saying, the um, studio was very concerned about how much gore to show, you know. So we had kind of a small, medium, and large. And um, <laughs> there was, the small was like body hard. Body count. Yeah, it was about based on body count. So the small represented very little bodies uh, actually in there, and it was mostly debris, but it was too confusing. Like, without showing any death, then the, it doesn't really nail the idea home. So we fought for uh, a little more, and I think we settled with the medium um, because the... The large was maybe a little too graphic. I fought uh, a lot to get this idea of it starting to snow. We were going to go into a sequence with snow, and, and it was sort of practical in that sense, but there was some calming effect and some sort of healing effect that, that this falling snow seemed to have that worked, I, I think, good emotionally. And, of course, after that, we mentioned how important it is to have comic relief after a heavy or a serious sequence, which that certainly was. And there it is. That's another thing, too. The overall pacing of the story is such an important factor. Coming from a slow, sad sequence, suddenly now, aside from the beginning it with the comic relief, but suddenly everything becomes hyperactive. You know, to set up this entire sequence, we had a big, huge model. Dean Can built remember it. remember that? Yeah, Dean, Dean Dublois, the story he artist that storyboarded model, it. built what, four, four by five feet? Right. And probably five feet deep and out of plaster of Paris and built the entire thing. Again, Dean Dublois, um, one of our leads on our, in our story department, because he needed to figure out what was happening where everyone was so that he could... You could get the right effect on the story right. level. It was the choreography of, of where they run, where they're headed, when does Sean Yu come up, where do they travel to. Um, so it was really effective for that. Because there's a, a lot to keep track of. And Cricky, Cr Cricky's pretty tricky because he is <laughs> so tiny. And the space that he's in right now is so immense that it takes a lot of work to get all of these guys and keep track of everyone. We used um, CG arrows. David Tidgewell and his effects department created CG arrows to create a lot of depth in this sequence. So you'll see we use them to great effect when they're coming towards camera. It gives a lot of depth because a lot of the backgrounds otherwise look very flat. It's those, those arrows that, that add some nice depth to the scenes. David Tidgewell is a, a supervisor of our effects department. And those are all CG flags, too. Great. They're this always blowing great, in the background. It's a great place to mention uh, Eric Guaglione, who is our lead of our CG de department, and really helped pull off all of this Hun charge. Uh, Sandra Gronveld modeled originally in clay some of the horses from Chin Yi's design, or a bust, almost, if you will, of, of one of the horses, and began doing some preliminary animation on it. But it was really neat and very inventive how they managed to animate probably, what, six horses? Six, five or six different horses? Behaviors, and five or six yeah. different Huns on these horses, but then with color and with swapping out shields and swords and hats and putting one rider on one horse and 
that you really never see two that are exactly the same. Uh, you might be if you want to take the time to do it, but it really feels like a, a wide variety of... Actually, well, and then actually, the thematic uh, that Jerry Goldsmith captured, that um, Sean used thematic, is one of my favorite mm -hmm. parts in his score. I love the whole um, music in him. From the time the avalanche collapses right after she shoots it till they save her over the cliff, I think that's one of the really fantastic parts of the score. It's one of my favorites. Now, again, on a story point, you ha you got to go back in, and, and when you watch the sequence, you realize that Mulan used her brain, because you see her. It was really important for us. You see her get the idea of that avalanche and the reflection of her sword. She gets the idea, and she acts upon it. And she's able to defeat an, a, a huge army here by using her brain and a combination of her physical strength, but mostly she uses her her head here. You'll see also um, one of the fun things that we did, it was actually very difficult to do in animation, was to try and get the, the feeling of, once the avalanche starts, we start um, a handheld camera feel through a lot of the shots, and it just gives a little bit of sway and, and tension um, to a lot of the scenes, but it's something that in the computer we could scale up or down depending on the value or the importance of the scene or how much tension the scene had. Um, so we used it to great effect to try and feel like you're actually in the avalanche, the audience is. We got, remember, um, Roy Disney sent us some avalanche footage. This avalanche, mm -hmm. get our effects department um, did a really great job in this movie and the design of the effects was great, but this avalanche was a lot of work. Garrett Wren did the fantastic animation of when the avalanche begins and also as it ends over the cliff other scenes too, but those were two mega scenes for an effects animator and just major work, all done by hand. How long did it Beautiful, take beautiful stuff. Oh, forever. He worked on that maybe through the course of the movie, it seems mm -hmm. like. It oh, took yeah. him a lot. Well, yeah, I think that was his sequence he was more or less assigned to was the avalanche, and he made it work. This was a really tricky sequence in terms of story because there's a, there's a lot going on. We had to make sure that we got some level of believability in here because there's a, you know, there's a huge um, suspension of disbelief you have to go with. But we reworked this sequence a lot trying to make sure where was everyone, what did Mulan need to accomplish, how did she save Shang, and we, it was important that the Gang of Three help her. We, we wanted them to be a part of this, which they ended up um, helping her, but we ultimately wanted Mulan to have been in charge to be responsible for the success. And not only is probably Yao the strongest man in the world to be able to hold on to that rope that's holding up uh, probably a, a ton of weight there with the horse. <laughs> a horse and but, two humans that but are that is, it uh, That must be a steel cable that it's attached to also. <laughs> so you just kind of have to ignore the improbability of it and go with the emotion of it. craziest man I've ever met. And for that, I owe you my life. From now on, you have my trust. Now, this sequence coming up was one that we tried a lot of different ways because we knew from the very beginning that Mulan had to be revealed to be a woman. How do you do that in a tasteful, 
manner. A lot of the a lot a of sequences movie we got, that. <laughs> a lot of the sequences we did at the very beginning got a laugh or they got gasps because they were too graphic. And Barry, wasn't this finally your solution? Well, yeah, I just thought that it was it was good to show just from a distance her being in the medic tent. I think the scene still where they're they're whispering to each other outside the tent, the medic and Shang, you, that sort of got still got a giggle in the final yeah, thing. It did. But to show that, you know, sort of after the fact that she had been treated for her injury and not the that, treatment yeah, of the injury. That a medical going man was the yeah, person was a, who discovered her. And right, it, a doctor, and which we, up until this point, he's not even around. He just sort of shows up on the mountain. The medic. He's a mountain medicine man or something. He lives up in the, in the but he's part of the army. But the, uh, the symbol on the side of his case and the little flag on the top of the tent is an ancient Chinese symbol for, uh, for a doctor. Uh, Chin Yi gave us that piece of research. But when we, we revealed her as a woman inside the tent, it gave her some dignity. Now, then Chi Fu immediately strips it away. As we get closer and closer to Shang about to execute Mulan, the color intensifies in the sky. And as soon as the sword hits the ground, you see the sky has no red in it. So a, an abrupt change for mood, hopefully something the audience would never consciously pick up on but m from a standpoint of mood and tone it shifts suddenly when you see the decision Chang's made to to uh, not right. obey the law himself and to and then it dissipates as he's uh, made a conclusion and it alleviates the tension of the scene one of the sub themes I believe in Mulan was what it takes to be a great leader and I think great leaders know when to break the rules. And I think we see Shang here making a really important decision. He should have killed her, but that wasn't the right thing to do. And he made a really hard choice right there by leaving her alone in the snow, which is to leave her, al to leave her alive, but she may have quite possibly perished. Although they're not Chinese characters, it doesn't say anything, but the arrangement of those little sticks in the fire to give you the feeling of of Chinese brushwork. We tried to put things in like that whenever we could. We, we wanted to get the idea from Mushu as a little, like a little marshmallow roast. Uh, of course, they wouldn't have had marshmallows, so we used these little uh, wonton things. Or those pot little stickers. dumplings. Yeah. <laughs> I love pot I gotta stickers. get me one of those, those look good. <laughs> it's getting close to lunchtime, that's probably why we're thinking of this, food. This sequence again, I remember talking about this for a really long time, and Barry pushed really hard for sort of her moment of self-doubt. And it's interesting because you can talk to people now who have seen the movie who talk about this sequence. And Barry, I remember trying to wrap my head around it when Barry was pushing for it because... We all thought he was crazy. <laughs> because it is. She has a moment of self-doubt, and it's the only time where you see her really almost feel sorry for herself. And other than that, Mulan remains pretty constant, and everything she does... She does because her heart tells her to behave in that manner. But this, this moment right here where she questions sort of her altruistic behavior was, uh, I think, a really great um, decision. She had pushed so hard to do this thing and to, and, and to make the grade and to hold her own among, in the situation. And, and then when, when it all fell apart, she really, she really does question her own motives and... 
and wonder if it was the right decision or if she had maybe made a great big mistake from the very start. I think a lot of what's underlying, too, is the guilt of, of um, you know, that some of, this might, those people. some of this might have been her fault, even, yeah. you know, this, the results of what happened. But we don't really get into that. But. And the other value that it has is that it really affects Mushu because mm-hmm. he, he sees her lamenting about what she'd done in such a selfless way that it makes him feel guilty. And, and we do a neat visual thing there, too, to bring back the reflection song where he sees his reflection in the helmet, and it's kind of at that moment that he feels that he needs to confess. And so he comes out with the truth that he was a con artist and he really couldn't help her, but then they they, they discover that they're both kind of outcasts and they need to continue on together. And it's really sort of the first moment we see the big turn in Mushu there that... Now we know that he is going to help her right. in a real way. He finally and loses his selfishness because he keeps it. Well, he has those traits still, yeah. you know, throughout. Yeah. I mean, He'll that's never part of his really character. be. But at least he's at saint. least he's committed now to her her well-being and not and not just his own. This scene is, I think, really great. I we we really fought to keep this one in too because we had a lot of discussions about well, couldn't you just surprise the audience and Sean Yu ends up later on. Yeah, do we have to show that he survived? Yeah, do we have to see all this? But what I love about it is it says to the audience that this guy is so bad, this one's one bad mamba-jamba, that <laughs> that he's going to take on, uh, still go on with his goal of killing the emperor with only five guys. You know, and he feel, he has, there's no doubt in his mind that he's not going to succeed. And then, of course, the value, the added value of Mulan seeing this, and she's the only one who knows that he still is alive and that he's on his track to kill the emperor. So that, that's another added bonus. Now again, noticing the sort of the rhythm of the story is that in our traditional end of act two, which is Mulan sitting around in that, that campfire feeling at her lowest low. One of the reasons we needed Sean Yu to emerge there is that she has to snap out of that very quickly so that her discovery of him being alive gets her out of feeling sorry for herself and Im- immediately continues to push us into Act 3 and into Mulan sort of, you know, he, it, it gets her back excited again because we needed a reason to pull her out of her doldrums. This is where technology saved us because we wanted, this, this sequence came about at the end of production. We had very little money, very little time. But luckily, we had the ability and the technology to develop these these this wonderful crowd behaviors. Eric Gualioni and his group helped to develop them. They're all hand-drawn, two-dimensional characters, but the computer is able to reproduce them um, so that it looks like thousands and thousands of crowds. It gives a very lush feel to this parade and later on when we get into the court. We couldn't have done that sequence without those guys. And I don't know that we planned it. Did we plan this going into it? Or did they come up with it? I think Eric came up with this yeah. idea to help us out. And, and also I wanted to talk about the art direction here a little bit. This is something Rick Sluter worked very hard on. I, we talked about an idea of, well, there's no electricity then, but I just love sort of the magical feel when we were in Hong Kong at night, you know, and the, and the streets and the, and, the, and the lights and yeah. the green glow of the city when we were flying in there. And I wanted to try to get these green almost like neon feel to that street but uh-huh. do it with the with the traditional chinese lanterns and it and it does have that nice it does have that feel to it it feels like one of those action cop 
Right. Movies, we wanted you know, to be Las Vegas Orient without or actually China being Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, or at least... Uh, but, it, you know, histor we are historically accurate. The Chinese did invent fireworks. Um, so we are accurate in that regard. Now, just to see those sea of people that are in a very short period of time, they're going to turn around and they're going to honor this woman who has, you know, according to the current, in, to the then laws of society, done everything wrong. And, of course, we know there's bad guys in that big paper dragon thing. Or do we? Yes. China will sleep safely tonight, thanks to our brave warriors. Sir, the emperor's in danger. But the Huns are here. Just from a story point of view, um, we talked about this a lot because, remember, we had Mulan feeling um, badly for herself. She knew she had to go do something. Immediately she goes in and she tries to get other people to do it for her. And she had lost sort of the sense of self that she could accomplish it. And that sequence was, was about turning to all of these people and no one would help her. And, and they don't she, trust her. No, they don't trust her. Doesn't she's, trust her. She's, quote, she's a woman. No one trusts her. No one believes in her. And you saw that look right back then. This is a woman. You, you see her get the idea. She's going to go now make yet another really smart um, usage of her brain and her physical ability to help, you know, save the day. Of course, now the Chinese army, too, has reduced down to about five guys. <laughs> and uh, we don't really talk about that very much, but... Uh, well, yeah, you'll see throughout that we start out um, with a hundred guys in the training shot. There's a hundred guys in that last shot. We start out with more of our army than we end up with, but we, you know, we're hoping that no one really notices that. <laughs> now they'll know it. Had open my mouth. I'll never reach the emperor in time. What's she up to? This is a great. Not only are they saying that they're going to trust her, she says, "I have an idea." And her ideas have always paid off for them, so you can see why they would trust her in this. But the other fun thing about this is that um, Again, we turn... Again, men in drag. Yeah, men in drag are always funny. men in drag <laughs> and underwear. We make it look as if they're giving armor to Mulan so that she can now, you know, get some armor on and help them fight. And yeah. in reality, but she's re dressing but, them but, up. Yeah, but yeah. she's taking their clothes because they're going to change. The, the fun thing about about this really story-wise is that we're turning the whole thing up upside down so now these ultra macho guys that we heard singing about the role of a woman and all that are themselves being dressed in a woman and she's more true to herself than she's ever been because um, she's not the made-up uh, matchmaker model that we had earlier on that wasn't being true to herself she's somewhere in between she's now. She's not in armor. Now you know that this you have to build this guy up as being one bad guy when only uh, just the presence of him popping out scares tens of thousands of people because uh, otherwise I think uh, you'd start to think, well, why couldn't they just get a couple soldiers up there and wipe <laughs> these guys out? He's obviously got a reputation. Yeah. We had a great fight choreographer that worked with us named B.H. Barry who helped us choreograph a lot of these fight scenes. Stage and screen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very popular in stage and screen um, that helped us with all these the fight choreography because we wanted stuff that would be humorous and fun and lend themselves to not only the training that they had that we saw earlier in the film but also be driven by their personalities everybody likes likes a little naked chicken joke <laughs>
and that banana out of his blouse. I don't know what that was about, but I sort of insisted on it, and this is still in the movie. I mean, it's kind, I, of, an, it's kind of an in-joke that Barry thought was funny, but... Nobody else did. I don't think anybody I just saw the they had a fruit bowl, and they just... I mean, they you know, whatever was in the well, group. No, ball. they took everything that was there. Well, everybody has round things, except for he's yeah, got a he banana. Yeah, he got stuck with one round and one banana, and I don't know. It he keeps had Barry to use laughing it. late at night <laughs> to this day. There's our great score composer Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry. Jerry the Silver Fox. We love Jerry Goldsmith and what he brought to this picture. Boy. Holy moly, to get someone of his caliber, we felt very fortunate. Look at this guy. Oh, that's got to hurt. Again, we talked about this in story a lot because the cutting of the rope was symbolic because it forced Sean Yu up there for a one-on-one -on -one sort of tete-a-tete -tete with Mulan. Well, yeah, it changed. But also his... got her trapped there. She knew that in order to save the emperor, she was going to have to put herself in danger. So. Yeah, she ended up having to stay up there because she knew she didn't have time to get down also and still cut the rope. But it also it changes his whole drive here because he knows he can't get to the emperor anymore and this we always saw you know he pulls out this dagger which is supposed to look sort of cool but it looks like it's it always got a laugh because it, was, <laughs> yeah. it looks so tiny and when you yeah. scale compared it's like, to sean oh, you gosh yeah, like what are you bringing out a butter you're gonna butter him to death what are you gonna do <laughs> <laughs> so now he's just focused on revenge she he's gonna take out the person that's responsible she says i'm the one responsible so don't hurt shang so it's a, it's a great moment where she's selfless, and, um, and it changes his direction. Now, this sequence was boarded by our head of story, Chris Sanders, who worked really hard at trying to find a balance between Mulan and Sean Yu, because Mulan is a tiny thing, and Sean Yu is a very big guy. So he struggled a long time with, how am I going to have her believably defeat him? And you'll notice, again, it's a combination of using her brain and her physical ability in order to get rid of the villain. Who are those two buffoons in the uh, fireworks tower? Why, I think that was you and I, Barry. We dived to our deaths earlier on. <laughs> Did we die? Kind of I don't think we died. I just thought dive. we landed on something soft. We dived to our deaths. I think oh, dive. I wouldn't dive. Though. It was kind of symbolic for, um, I think, the, the need for some rest. Remember, guys, we wanted really, we really didn't want our villain to, to die by falling to his death. Mm -hmm. So we made, <laughs> we so made sure that he like didn't so many die Disney by falling too. to his death. Yeah, it's kind of a Disney tradition that villains fall to their death, and we were adamant about not killing off Shan Yu in that way. How he was going to die, we weren't quite sure until we came up with this whole firework thing. That was a little lame. Shang just running from the castle. Okay, it was convenient. It was a Shang just convenient. running from the palace and Mulan falling on his head. At least we got them together again. 
Everybody loves, loves a good fireworks show, yeah. so it, it kind of echoes in the triumph of her. Yeah. Chifu's never happy, though. Here he comes. <laughs> they do that over Epcot now, that particular show. Where he goes with the advertisements. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I live in Florida. Let's see, and, uh, who pays you know, your check? Well, yeah. I live yeah. in Florida, and my check comes from Walt Disney World. So this, this sequence coming up here was, again, um, much debated. I can explain. And a lot of times when we screen, just like I mentioned earlier where we didn't want Mulan to touch her father when she was leaving, sequence in which she hugs the emperor, we got a lot of notes from people that saw the movie before it was released um, in the Eastern culture, which is that would never happen. And that was precisely our point. Or the fact that he bows to her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is the reason the that... The bow and the hug. His the bow, bow is His bow, we, we kind of uh, didn't make his bow quite be as deep as everybody else's, too, which was even just a slight nod that he gives her... Um, is enough to say that that's a big deal. So Chifu freaks out. That's my scene of Chifu. I animated him bowing. <laughs> but see, this was in a, this this is a really important sort of wrapping up what we were trying to say with the movie. This is a woman who was because she was true to her heart and true to herself. She actually altered the way society thought. Mushu was even choked up about it. My little baby is all grown up and. Save in China. You have a tissue. We had to come up with a special technique for that bow. That do you want to talk about what Jeff Dutton did through there? Jeff Dutton did something pretty amazing with traditional animation, but a way to multiply it using various levels. It would have been in older techniques. It would have been thought of probably as a multiplane type shot. But to create a, I don't exactly know how he did it, but it worked out. Good. <laughs> he had a lot of witches' brews around at the time. <laughs> Jeff Dutton is uh, when you have a real problem, he can usually help you find a solution. He's our artistic so. coordinator on the movie. It's uh, artistic coordinator is actually, uh, in my opinion, the director's best friend. He is uh, Jeff Dutton is enormous artistic talent, and he's also got a real great technical grasp of what it takes to make one of our movies. And so he works with the directors in helping them get their vision and the most. Um, economical way possible. Does things with Elmer's glue that you've never seen before. <laughs> but we won't go into that. No, go That's another story. Now, you're at the end of the movie, and, you know, our goal was to have all of these characters likable enough that you needed to pay them off. Hello. So we needed, you know, Curtain we needed call. our gang of three moment. We needed Chifu to get a little bit of comeuppance. And you needed, we needed to end here with the sort of tension of, will they... Will they get you know, will they together? really get together? Get because together? that Shang and Mulan's exit was awkward, and we rewrote that scene a lot of times. Yeah, and that was purposeful because we felt like if you didn't, if he wasn't such a kind of a geeky guy here and say kind of screw up, and he thinks he's giving her a great compliment by saying that she was a great, great warrior. She fights you good. Know, she, you fight good. Which should be um, well, according to the English teachers, and we knew that. And we knew that, of but course. But we got but notes on we that, We thought too. it would be funnier if, she, if it came out kind of blunt and wrong. So, but, you know, that kind of keeps the audience going. They wonder, well, is that where the romance between them is going to end? And, of course, no, there's more to see. Tony West animated that Blossom Falling, very much inspired by uh, a sequence from the original Fantasia. And again, this is where 
Chris Sanders sort of brought it all home uh, with the bookend of the scene where they were first under the tree and also the whole idea that we wanted early on that really got us on track for the story is how will this relationship resolve between the father and the daughter. You know, Mark Hinn animated this scene where a tear comes to her eye and he wipes it away. In the storyboards, um, all that was there was one drawing that was held for a long time during all that dialogue of them hugging. And we thought, well, it's going to be a little boring acting-wise that, that they're just holding on to each other while they're saying these things. But Mark, uh, in his wisdom, had them kind of pull out of the hug, which I was a little resistant of at first, I must admit. But he pulls away from the hug to do the tear and then goes back into the embrace, and I think it just makes for all the more lump in your throat. And Shane comes back with this lame excuse uh, that uh, she left some equipment behind. <laughs> but, uh, you know, typical guy. Would you like to stay for dinner? Would you like to stay forever? For all of his skill and <laughs> athleticism, he doesn't have much prowls around the women. No, he's a little, little nerdy. And Mushu, the braggart, here he comes. What about me? We really fought with how to end the film and did it have too many endings. That's always a big issue, I think, in a Disney film, and particularly in this one. We fought with, well, should we end with her, the bow moment at the, the palace? Do we need to come back home? Well, yeah, we need to resolve the story with Dad, so should we end after the, the moment with the hug with Dad? No, we need, we need something fun with Mushu, too. So it was a matter we of trying to, to find the right. We cut it back to, we cut it about five different ways. I mean, we would, we would cut it different ways and we'd screen it. We'd sit there and we'd watch and go, okay, that's how it feels to end with the Mulan and dad moment under the tree. I think we kind of liked the idea of ending it with an upbeat. Yeah. You know, you have all the sort of it had to be a party. Really soft we, stuff we talked about into it. It was important that the audience kind of leave on a high point, that they're getting down with, with the characters as they boogie out of the theater. And that right. was kind of a fun thing for us. Well, one thing, too, that, that uh, your audience, as you start making these films, as your crew grows and you, as you get further down the line in production, your audience grows. And at first you're just showing drawings to one another, you know, a small group of people getting the idea to put a movie together. And then more artists come on, so your your audience begins to grow. But the way you think about it as you're working is whoever looks at it, everybody's part of the audience, part of the growing audience for the film. And I think any filmmaker wants to, to please the audience with their movie. And eventually the audience grows worldwide, which is fun, but you're constantly showing it, and you're constantly trying to make it better until you have to release it into the theaters. I, having worked on the movie for five years, watching the movie reminds me of why I made that initial decision to go to Florida, because from a female standpoint, I loved what this movie, the message this movie was sending to are, you know, are little girls all over the, the world. And it, this is a movie that you can do anything you want to do, be true to who you are, and you can accomplish really great things in the world. I remember after the movie came out, I had a lot of dads come in and stop me. And I'm sure you guys got the same thing, but they came and stopped me and said, you know what, thank you very much for giving 
me this movie to watch with my daughter and giving her such a positive role model because this isn't a woman who's wrapped up in how she looks. This is a woman who is completely consumed with following her heart and doing the right thing for the right reasons and and I, that um, actually really means a lot to me. And for me I think and Tony too I know you've talked about it lots of times but there really is something about as fathers which we both are of daughters this story means a lot to us and along the way meant a lot to us to try to uh, explore that relationship that's uh, a big part of it and to see for me too one of the things that I hate the most is uh, nowadays the casting of most fathers and most uh, film roles father types are pretty big lugheads and just sort of buffoons and idiots especially on, t on television the dad's always the, the knucklehead you know and uh, I thought this was a way to show uh, something too that you know sure your father and daughter aren't always going to get along but uh, to, to find the understanding of each other is, is so important. Yeah, and I'll say for myself that Mulan meant a lot to me, not only because of the reasons that, that both Pam and Barry are mentioning about what it meant to give something to my daughters, who I knew would watch the, the, this from years to come, but also as a first-time director, um, it was an incredible learning experience. Mm -hmm. um, all the things that we talked about in the making of this film were things that I learned from doing them. And I learned from the great and talented crew that we had in Florida and in California. And I will remember this film, I'm starting to get a little bit clamp. <laughs> I will remember this film uh, for the rest of my life. And it's funny that I think what'll happen, and of course history will see this out, but I'll probably look back when I'm 80 and say that Mulan was the best film that I ever worked on, the film that I'm the most proud of, and yet it was my first directing mm -hmm. feature. Well, we had such an incredible group of talented people, you know, to work with. Right, and so much of it is when you're when you're working on a project for so long, you really have to uh, enjoy it day to day, and it's not so much completing it and what it does after you after you're finished, but more important, I think, you find is the experience you had of doing it and taking the journey with the rest of the the crew and the other artists and the things you went through together. So many of us would have given up a right arm to make sure that this thing came out right. You know, it's funny how you fall in love with something. And, and I the fell whole in Florida love with... studio did too. I mean, yeah. they took a great deal of pride in the fact that it was their first complete feature to be produced there. Although we did have help from California, we could have never finished it, of course, without animators and, and stuff here. But but uh, they really sort of took it as as their own and and really worked harder than I've ever witnessed a crew work on a film, at least had yeah. more passion about what they were doing. And uh, it was a great it was a great atmosphere of production, a really good time. I would just like to take this time to thank you for joining us on this journey through what is our history on Mulan. We really enjoyed having you be a part of it, and I hope that you learned something along the way. You know what, thanks for joining us. Thanks for uh, taking the time to listen to the audio commentary, and. See you again next movie.